Well, this truly is one of my favorite parts of the year, not only because you can feel fall just ahead of us, but because I get to teach so many of you in the classroom how excited I am for the semester ahead of us. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15, a difficult text. We won't be focusing on all of it, but we will focus on some of the most difficult aspects of it to reflect more theologically this morning. Some of you may know the context of 1 Samuel 15, a tragic, even depressing chapter in the story of Israel, though one that is not without hope. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul fails as king of Israel. God promised his king that he would deliver Israel from those Amalekites. And he gave his king a very clear command when God gave Saul the victory, Saul must put to death King Agag and devote even the spoils of war to destruction. Despite these clear commands, Saul rebels, doesn't he? He rebels against the Lord and the Lord says to Samuel, his prophet, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Verse 11. Not only, if you read the rest of the chapter, not only did Saul keep Agag and the spoils of victory alive, but when the prophet Samuel confronted Saul, the king justified his actions as if they were in the service to God. Have you ever done this? You rebel against God and his clear command, but you spiritualize your actions to justify what you've done? Except Saul is the king of Israel. How does he do this? Well, he says, look, Lord, I kept all the animals alive so that I could sacrifice them to you. What I find so horrifying about Saul's self-justification is the way he assumes he can manipulate God emotionally underneath what's underneath this presumption. Saul thinks he can treat Yahweh like the nations treat their idols. Gods that can be persuaded, gods that can be handled, gods that, yes, can be changed by the actions of men. Yahweh is no fool, is he? Samuel, look at what it says next. Samuel responds to Saul has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And notice what he says. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And then Saul receives that infamous, devastating announcement You have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul. Now the Lord has rejected you as king. 
The Lord has Saul's attention, doesn't he? Who finally at last confesses his sin, but it's too late. Look at verses 28 through 29. Although Saul asks for a second chance, the answer is no. And yet, Saul still thinks, perhaps I can change God's mind. He seizes Samuel's robe, tearing it, to which Samuel responds, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, Saul, in case you have misunderstood who you are speaking to, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Notice Samuel confronts the presumptuousness of Saul. How dare Saul think that he can treat God as if he can be moved by man's agenda. There lies the presumption. But didn't God say he did regret making Saul king? What do we do with that? Now on the surface, it could seem like God realized I've made a mistake. He thought Saul was the man for the job, but now, now he's changed his mind after seeing just how rebellious Saul is. God's overcome with grief, perhaps, at his own unwise decision-making. That interpretation, though, would undermine God's perfections, as if he is a God who makes mistakes. It would undermine his trustworthiness, even his wisdom. Can we trust a God who makes mistakes? And it would undermine his unchanging, his immutable nature. He changes his mind and experiences emotions that cause him to fluctuate. So what then does God mean when he says there that he regrets making Saul king? Well, Scripture often speaks in a way that is what we call anthropomorphic. In other words, it uses human qualities to speak of a God who is not human. But Scripture also at times uses language that is anthropopathic. In other words, using human emotions, feelings, or what we call passions. Why would Scripture do that? Friends, is this not a sign of God's gracious accommodation to us finite creatures? I love what John Calvin said. God is like a nurse who stoops down and he lisps to that newborn baby. God has lisped to us. You see, the language of regret it does convey something that is literally true, but it's not meant to be interpreted in a literalistic fashion, as if God is distraught because he now realizes he has made a mistake. He's grieving over his blunder. Let me give you two reasons 1 Samuel 15 might use this type of language. First, it indicates God's total condemnation, not partial, but total condemnation, of Saul's rebellion. It is language that we humans 
recognize because it conveys absolute rejection. The holy God of Israel stands against you, Saul, and he will no longer tolerate this treason. Second, it conveys to us as Bible readers that a major shift has occurred in this story of Israel. God's plan all along has been to raise up a king after his own heart. And by declaring his regret, God is announcing that this new king is on the horizon. Rather than witnessing a a change in God, an emotional one at that, we are instead witnessing here the effects of God's eternal, all-wise, and very good will for Israel in time, at this time in history. Augustine was right when he said, our God is without change in himself as he is making changeable things, yet all the while undergoing nothing. What Augustine means and what Saul learned the hard way that day is this, the creator is not the creature. Our God is without passions. We witness our passions, don't we, in play whenever finite creatures are acted upon, affected by, or changed by something else, something external to themselves. Where there are passions, there is change within due to a feeling or emotion that moves you either to good or perhaps in this case to evil. The other day, I saw Dr. Allen at the Spurgeon volleyball game. He was on the edge of his seat. One of the Spurgeon players went up high, higher than I think Dr. Allen could jump, so high and spiked the ball, giving us the lead. And suddenly Dr. Allen jumped up, threw his hands in the air and it was cheering. Some of you around him were giving him high fives. Your faces said, we're gonna win. Not but a few minutes later, if that, someone on the opposing team started dominating. And suddenly many of you looked like someone had died. (laughs) Including Dr. Allen. (laughs) Your faces said, all is lost. We're gonna lose. You were overcome, weren't you? Discouraged, despaired, uncertain, fear. You could see it in your eyes. You see, passions are the movement of our souls. And they can even create passions of the body, such as tears of joy or tears of pain. Thank God we won that game. Passions are not necessarily sinful, but they are entirely creaturely. Because we are so insufficient of ourselves, aren't we? So insufficient. We are dependent in nature, always participating, always receiving. And as needy creatures, passions, they reveal that need, even our deficiency. Whenever we are affected, the consequences, emotional fluctuation, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. 
Passions always have the potential to cause, say, suffering or even loss. Now, passions are very appropriate for us because we are incomplete apart from God, always attempting to actualize our potential as human beings, being moved either to good or evil, hopefully to the good and away from the evil. But they are contrary to a God who by definition is perfect because he is complete in every way, entirely self-sufficient in and of himself. You don't have to turn there, but we get a glimpse into this in Acts 14. One of my favorite passages, a wild passage, Paul and Barnabas heal a man in Lystra, only for the cloud to exclaim, the gods, the gods, they've come down to us in the likeness of men. How awkward was this? Barnabas is called Zeus, and the priest of Zeus starts to come out with animals to make sacrifices to Barnabas. Paul is distraught. We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. If you were to look at some older translations, the Greek is actually saying, stop, we are men of like passions as you, affected in similar ways as you. It's genius, isn't it what Paul does next? He turns to the creator who is the giver of life, the giver of life. And then the creature who is the receiver of life, the one who participates in God's life. Is it any wonder that Paul is horrified when they call Barnabas Zeus? These gods of mythology are so creaturely, they're so moved, they're so affected, they're so changed, they're so caused by others. One moment they're parading their power, like Zeus so famously did, the god of the sky, flying off the handle, throwing thunderbolts at people. And the next moment, they're helpless, they're pathetic. They're wallowing in their defeat, their agony. You can't help but pity them because they look a lot like us. I think it's for this reason that the great tradition across the centuries has said the Christian God, well, he is impassable. You see, they wanted to ensure faithfulness to the Bible and to Christian orthodoxy. In fact, even our Protestant forefathers, even our Baptist forefathers wrote confessions and said, God is without change, God is without passions. Unlike man, God is not vulnerable, acted upon by someone or something so that he undergoes emotional change. Nor is he by nature fluctuating from one emotional state to another as if he has feelings analogous to ours. No one alters God so that he suffers loss. That word loss is really important, isn't it? You may remember God is a perfect being. 
a God of infinite life, goodness, blessedness. And therefore, he is complete in every way. He does not change, for change implies he must change for the better, which means something was lacking before, or that he could change for the worse. Certainly that would strike against Romans 1.23, wouldn't it? When Paul says our God is incorruptible. How did some of our forefathers describe? What language did they use to say this? They said God is pure act. He's pure actuality. That may be a technical, even a foreign word to you, but they found it extremely important. As the fullness of life in and of himself, there is no potential in God, they said, what they called passive potency, as if something in God is incomplete until it is activated so that he can then reach his fulfillment. No, God is very different. God is not perfect because he was perfected. As one theologian has said, God is perfect not because he was perfected. He has perfected all of his potential. No, he is. He is perfection itself. He's a God of blessedness and being not a God who must be beckoned into becoming something greater. Consider love, for example. Nothing else and no one else caused love to exist in God. Nor does God look to anything or anyone else to somehow actualize or bring to fulfillment or completion his love. Why? Because he is maximally alive. He could not be any more loving than he already is from all eternity. Infinite and immense. He is love without measure. Though that may be counterintuitive to us, impassibility actually protects God's love. It guarantees his love will not change on you as if it could somehow grow weary, as if it could be perfected to somehow grow stronger than it already is. Isn't this what Augustine was after? That famous line in his confessions. Lord, you love without burning. You are jealous in a way that is free from anxiety. Does that mean, does, does this mean that, him, that God is lifeless, stoic, apathetic? That caricature is often due to a misunderstanding. We think impassibility is an attempt to say something positive, even psychological about God, as if he is detached and indifferent, inactive and unconcerned, inert, even apathetic. But friends, like God's unchanging perfection, impassibility is what we call a negative concept. Not negative as if it's bad, but negative meaning that its primary purpose is to describe what God is not. 
This is called the way of negation. You do it all the time. We negate anything of God that would somehow limit his perfections. We deny anything detrimental or deficient to God. Passibility is no doubt that one attribute that perhaps strikes at our human instincts. Observing the horrors caused by Nazi Germany during World War II, countless modern theologians and pastors, people that used to sit in seminaries, just like you're doing now, they tried to give hope to a suffering people all over the globe when they asked, where is God? They answered, God is there suffering with you. He's in the concentration camp, the gas chamber. He too hangs dead on the gallows. Of course, this answer is not that far removed from our experience, is it? Who has not been in a Bible study or a prayer meeting when someone shares a tragedy and there's that awkward silence? We're so eager to say something quick. Someone responds, don't worry, don't worry. God was just surprised. He was just as surprised by that tragedy as you were. He was just as overcome as you were. You're suffering. God is suffering right there with you. What are we to make of that? It's a very popular commitment to a God who suffers in his divinity. Not long ago, I received a phone call from my mother who lives in Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco, for those of you who've never left the Midwest. It was a hard phone call because she said, you're never gonna believe it, but we're engulfed in flames. There's natural fires in the, the hills nearby, and they are taking over. Imagine if you were there in the thick of it. Imagine if your house were to catch on fire that night. You barely escape the front door, and then you turn around just trying to breathe. And you have a sick feeling in your stomach because you realize your loved one is still inside. But imagine as the neighborhood gathers to watch, what kind of response? Well, what kind of response would you look for in others? Suppose one woman shows her sympathy by screaming uncontrollably, even ripping out her hair, gouging out her eyes. Suppose the man next to you so wants to understand the pain and suffering by those inside that he pours gasoline on himself and lights himself on fire too. Understandably, you would be perplexed, maybe a bit outraged, until you saw that firefighter surveys the burning house, so acutely aware of the danger within, as well as the suffering and turmoil by those within, he refuses to be moved by emotional outbursts, overcome with panic, Instead, he runs into the house, rescues your loved one, 
while the others, looking on, weep uncontrollably. In that moment, we don't really want someone who suffers emotional change. We want someone who is impassable. Only, only they are able to save others so hopeless in that burning house. Did the fireman lack compassion? No. His compassion was the most effective of all. While the compassion of others led to emotional meltdown, personal panic attacks, irrational behavior, the compassion of that firefighter led him, him alone in fact, to act in the most heroic way possible. He did not need to suffer himself to be compassionate. Similarly, we do not really want a God who suffers in his divinity, despite what our first instincts might say. Such a God may be like us, but he cannot help us, let alone redeem us from the evil in this world. In fact, we need a God who is not merely impassable by choice, like that firefighter, but by nature. Augustine prayed this way, You, Lord God, lover of souls, show a compassion far purer and freer of mixed motives than ours, for no suffering injures you. If God is impassable and Jesus is the Son of God, then how, do, how can God remain impassable when Jesus, as we know, died on the cross? Well, this is a deep question, isn't it? First, we must distinguish carefully between the two natures of Christ. Many of the church fathers before you guarded the church from all types of heresies because they were careful to do just that. In the fifth century in particular, some of them gathered together as a church and said, we need to write a definition. They, this was called the definition of Chalcedon. And it instructed the church. Notice how concerned they are for the church. It instructed the church not to mix or confuse the two natures of Christ with one another on the one hand, or divorce those two natures from one another on the other hand. Two dangers. They confessed one person of Christ in two natures, they said, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. You see, by attributing human passions directly to Christ's divine nature, we risk confusing the two natures, subjecting both to change in the end humanizing divinity. It's a right instinct, isn't it? It's a right instinct to stress the unity of the incarnate God-man. And yet, our fathers have warned us, be careful to preserve the distinction of the nature so that they are by no means taken away by the union. When we resist the temptation to confuse attributes of one nature with those of another nature. They said, well, the property of each na nature is preserved. It concurs. It's concurring in one person. Listen to what they said. That person is simultaneously not parted or divided into two persons, 
But there continues to be one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. This can be seen very practically when we ask a question like this. Maybe you've asked this question before. Who is it that is suffering at the cross? And the answer, some of you are afraid to answer now, aren't you? The answer, though, is the person of the Son. But if we were to ask a slightly different question, we theologians love to do this, slightly different question. What is the manner by which the Son undergoes suffering? Well, our answer should change. The Son suffers as a man. For the Son of God has assumed a human nature. He is not only true God, but true man. The church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said it this way. He said, Christ is passable in his flesh, impassable in his Godhead. Maybe this helps explain some of those difficult, even confusing texts by the Apostle Paul. I think it explains why Paul can say to the Ephesians, for example, pay careful attention to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood? What about the Corinthians? None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's a tragic irony for those then who reject impassibility. Because if Christ suffers in his divine nature, then he's not actually suffering as a man. But isn't this exactly what so many are after? A Jesus who is like us and therefore can relate to us, they say. See, the person of Christ suffers, but the manner in which he undergoes that suffering is by means of his humanity. This may feel counterintuitive. If Christ suffers in his deity at the cross, or the Father or Spirit suffers with him, do you realize we actually have excluded the Son from suffering for us on behalf of of humanity. As one theologian has said, having locked suffering within God's divine nature, we've locked God out of human suffering. If the Son of God is going to act on our behalf, as Isaiah says, as our suffering servant, then it's critical that we honor his suffering as truly human. To segregate suffering to his divinity is to empty suffering in the incarnation from its effectiveness entirely. Many of you in this room may be pastors someday. Some of you in this room may even be missionaries taking the gospel to the nations. Some of you may stay right here in Kansas City telling people about Jesus and the good news at restaurants, 
in classrooms that you teach one day. How does all of this relate then to the gospel and to your Christian life? If God were passable, would that change the gospel that you preach, that you share? Would it change the promises that God has in store for you as a Christian? Absolutely. If God undergoes passions, emotional change, if his perfections, his essence, his works fluctuate in response to the creature, well, friends, it's reasonable to wonder then, are God's promises, Christ's saving work to fulfill those promises, the application of those promises both now and in the future, on which I've set all of my hope, are they certain? If God's perfections change, if he's fluctuating from one emotional state to the next, then his promises might change as well. A passable God, listen to me, a passable God would leave you in a state of unbelievable anxiety. Unsure whether he will remain constant in who he is, what he has said. His wrath would not be just because his retribution is potentially uncontrollable. His love would not be steadfast as the Psalms repeatedly say. For a passable love guarantees no certainty of devotion. And passability is the basis on which God's steadfast love and justice are built. The cross is a case in point. It is precisely because God does not suffer that he is able to send his only begotten son to suffer for us, for you, as true man, as Paul says to Timothy, manifested in the flesh. The person of the Son suffers on the cross in the fullness of his humanity, yet he is able to do so only because suffering does not victimize him. If God is just as much a victim of suffering as we are, he is helpless, he is powerless, he is hopeless to embark on that rescue mission. That is not the picture we see when we open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels portray the Son of God fully in control of his mission. Our Lord set his face to Calvary. He announced, he even predicted his redemptive suffering, putting on full display the totality of his sovereignty in the midst of foolishness and weakness. Not only does impassibility guarantee that Christ can save sinners, but it guarantees that God's love and his grace are free. If God is passable, then his love is contingent on the creature. It's dependent on the creature for its fulfillment. It's incomplete. Some will object 
that a real give and take relationship must require a passable love, a love that's mutually dependent and changed by the one it loves, which is very true of our human experience. However, passable love is entirely conditioned on humans, on the creature, and grace is no longer free. Mercy, no longer a gift. Love, no longer purely gratuitous. God must look to those outside of himself for the fullness of his love. And yet when we open the Bible, we are taught that God's love is unconditional. It's free. It is purely altruistic. Why? Because this love is impassable. It does not look to the creature for its effectiveness. It is rooted in God's unchanging nature. In the end, only a God who does not suffer loss can, can accomplish redemption for a suffering humanity who is lost. Only one who is impassable can become incarnate as the suffering servant. And only one whose love depends on no one can offer you grace that is free of charge. Let's pray. Lord, impassibility is so counterintuitive to us today. We live in a culture that idolizes our human passions the way our culture has influenced our thinking about you means that our perfect, your perfections, they sometimes are so foreign to us. But Lord, without it, we risk taming you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is I am. Lord, we confess we risk remaking you into our own image. Lord, we know this is the essence of idolatry. So humble us now to see your impassibility so that the ministry that you've entrusted to so many here today may be an idolatry-free zone, a people who worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.